0: Any standard review of the signers of the Declaration must start with the man who signed the largest, John Hancock. And that is why I will not begin with him. Oh, he deserves praise, and we'll get to him, but instead I ask you to picture a man desperately clinging to the rudder of a sailing vessel as it speeds up the Atlantic Ocean. His hands are occupied, so he can't wave. He relies on his voice to signal to his fellow passengers his distress. As he shouts, he hopes to be heard above the ocean foam. Sea travel was not smooth or safe in the time of the founding of America. On the high seas, an overcrowded British vessel going from the British colony in St. Augustine, Florida, to the city of Philadelphia, Thomas Haywood, was jerked from the deck and fell into the water Pronounce haywood though it appears a word on the declaration that he signed he was being released as part of a prisoner exchange who was about to get his freedom now his life was in peril this was not a punishment devised by the british dunking him in water although some of the authorities might have wanted to do that it was an accident yet indirectly resulted from the captivity he suffered men from the boat looked around for him feared he was deep in the sea They were soon alerted to the ship's bow. Haywood was using a voice that he hadn't been using during most of his famous contribution to history. He seldom spoke during the congressional session. He was a moderate. He didn't want independence at first. He wanted some form of protest against Great Britain's treatment of Americans, maybe some appeal to other nations, but hopefully reconciliation with the king. He would come to change his mind and side with the patriot cause, with the independent cause. When the British attacked and captured the main city of his state in 1780, Haywood was taken prisoner, and the British would plunder his plantation. The British made no distinction between reluctant signers and enthusiastic ones. And the British had another reason to single him out. Haywood was appointed the judge of the criminal courts of the new state government. He was presiding at the trial of people who had conducted treasonable correspondence with the British Army, which was in the vicinity of Charleston. Judge Haywood condemned the people who had conducted the correspondence and ordered their execution, and ordered it to take place within view of the enemy. This served, along with the signing of the Declaration, to make him a special target for the British. Yet Hayward was treated as a prisoner of war, and thankfully, due to a prisoner exchange, escaped the noose. He was rescued from the rudder, too, and he would live to see the Constitution of the United States passed, and his fellow signer, Thomas Jefferson, become president. He died in 1809. Thomas Lynch Jr., it appears, was not so lucky with his voyage. He hadn't been on that ship, the ship that Hayward was on. He wasn't captured, as three of his fellow South Carolinian signers were. But he was on another voyage made perilous by the war. Lynch was one of the youngest signers of the Declaration at 26 years old, and he wasn't supposed to be there. His father, Thomas Lynch Sr., was supposed to be the signer. Lynch's father was ill, and Lynch wanted to see him. But even for this extenuating circumstances, he could not get leave from his militia company in South Carolina. Election to Congress was one of the ways his fellow South Carolinian friends could get him to Philadelphia to see his father in still an honorable way. Sadly, despite Lynch's youth, he himself was sickly as his father was. He would suffer from some kind of fever, perhaps an infection unknown in that day, nausea, hot flashes, sweats. He would often find it difficult to work through the sessions. His absence may have been okay with some of the independence faction, though. Benjamin Rush felt he was a man of modern talents and timid to difficult circumstances of his country. But in his moderation, he was no different than his father's position, who he thought, entering the Congress, to replace his father, he should emulate. Without modern medical knowledge, it was felt that a change of climate might help in the view of Thomas Lynch Jr.'s physicians and friends. Presented the only hope of his recovery maybe the south of France. But a voyage to Europe was at that time hazardous on account of the exposure to capture. There was, however, a boat that was proceeding to a Caribbean island and then, with his wife on board, would go to France. It was a circuitous route through a very different route that the British weren't likely to find. He embarked, as did his wife, and days passed, weeks, No one heard from Lynch Jr., no one heard from his wife, nor any of the ship's passengers. Months passed, and he was presumed lost at sea. Yet in his short 26 years, he had inked a world-famous statement, a declaration of rights that still influences politics all over the world today. The reluctance shown initially by Hayward and Lynch exactly fit the views of their fellow South Carolinians. It was a divided state. They frustrated John Adams and the fervent patriot delegates with their opposition to moving on independence. It wasn't that they loved the government of Britain, what it was doing to the colonies, but they wanted to wait until either an agreement could be worked out with the British king or an agreement could be worked out with France and Holland first, so that we would present a united front against the king. It's also possibly true that the delegates from South Carolina feared independence would lead to dominion by the more populous and wealthy northern states. The colony was split with some patriot activity, but also a healthy backcountry contingent that was aligned more with the British government. One of the colony's exports was indigo, and that was heavily subsidized by the British. But grievances were strong. All four of them. The delegates from South Carolina were from the low country, the coast area represented the high society of the state. Most of them were Charleston lawyers. It's worthwhile to note that the English colony of the province of Carolina was started in Charleston in 1670 and in a unique fashion. The wealthy planters and their slaves came not from England, as was the case in most other colonies, but this was an extension of the British Caribbean colony of Barbados. It's known for its palmetto trees, and for those familiar with the state, it's a funny-looking tree that thrives near the coast with a fuzzy trunk. Many observing it think that they're palm trees, which they're not. Charleston, its leading seaport, was then one of the most prosperous cities. The Importation Act hit this colony pretty hard. Parliament even required that certain American products could only be sold to England or a British colony. The list of such products included tobacco, cotton, silk, coffee, indigo, naval stores, skins, sugar, rice... Everything South Carolina made. The colonists were not allowed to import manufactured articles also from any other country but England, without the payment of heavy duties, which made everything expensive. So what do you do? Maybe you can make these articles yourselves. No, even that was banned by the British. You had to go to English manufacturers. What a great coup for them. Still, South Carolinians were business people, and a business deal and negotiation a reconciliation with the king was what the colony mostly wanted. As the delegates took the position of their colony in July of 1776, they thought they were representing the pulse of their community. They were unaware, perhaps, that opinion in their colony, once conservative and moderate against independence, had drastically changed. The colony was under attack, and it would be saved, at least in part, by those unique looking trees on its coast. In June 1776, British Commander Clinton and Admiral Parker prepared to reduce the town to submission. In the meantime, South Carolina militia had constructed fortifications of palmetto log after palmetto log at the southern end of Sullivan's Island, this at the entrance to the harbor of Charleston. Right here, there was a defending force of about 1,200 militiamen, while several hundred men and a battery were sent to defend the northern end of the island against any possible landing party. The British attacked on the morning of the 28th of June, 1776 and began bombarding this palmetto log construction from a fleet of war vessels. They had a landing force of several thousand men. The battery, though, set up on the north of Sullivan's Island, repulsed the landing force. The British fleet then began a heavy 10-hour bombardment. The Americans returned fire, causing great damage, while the shots of the British bounced off or sank almost harmlessly into the soft, spongy, but strong enough, palmetto logs. The theory of a cannonball, the type that was used back then, is that the impact would shatter wood. But if the wood gives a little, you reduce greatly the effect of the cannonball. The Patriots had less powder, but used it to better advantage, firing with the cool precision of trained soldiers. did terrible damage to the British ships. The flagship of the British, Admiral Parker's vessel, was rendered useless, and he himself was wounded. The former royal governor of South Carolina, Lord William Campbell, who had been driven off, who was expecting now after the British arrival to take over the colony again after its capture, was now mortally wounded on a British ship in the attack. One of the British ships was ran aground, and the Americans were able to take command of it, turning its guns onto the British. The British lost 200 men in the conflict, nine ships rendered unusable. While well, The American loss was 12 killed and 25 wounded. And South Carolina was kept safe from invasion for three years. The battle happened before Saratoga and Trenton, but it's not the most common revolutionary war battle people cite. During the independence vote, South Carolina ended up voting for independence only to make it unanimous because everyone else did. But by the time these men returned for the signing of the Declaration in August of 1776, they were very eager signers. And maybe that's why Arthur Middleton commits to that well-flourished signature. The T in Arthur forms a cross that rises above the first name in the second part of his last name and puts a perfectly smooth halo over him. He was a well-educated man who schooled in England, toured Europe, and returned to South Carolina at age 19. At age 36, he became a member of the South Carolina Assembly. Hated loyalists, take their property and tar and feather them, was his attitude. So, his views were right in line with the document. He complained about British treatments of the colonies. Heavily involved in independence activities, a state constitution, a state seal, a committee of public safety in the new state, replaced his father when the elder Middleton became ill. Thus, he got to sign. Middleton was 34 at the time of signing and would live to see the revolution carried out, and he would be captured in that struggle. His original family home, Middleton Place, is a giant garden and a museum still available to visitors to South Carolina. Younger signer by a few months was his brother-in-law, Edward Rutledge. Just 26 at signing, he had as late as 1772 been in England and had sought admission to the English bar. But returning to America in 1774, two years before the signing, he would now become a member of the Continental Congress. John Adams said that he was a young spark. When a discussion early in the convention about a promise made by King George was stated, Rutledge immediately blurted out, The king's promises are worthless. Like his father, John Rutledge, who, but for the service in the defense of his state, would be here at the Continental Congress with him. He was a strong supporter of American rights. Again, we need to draw a line between moderates in policy and moderates in personality. The Rutledges were for reconciliation initially, but not for servitude. After the war, he would argue for confiscation of Loyalist property. Like Haywood, when the British returned and captured Charleston, Rutledge was taken prisoner by the enemy and sent to St. Augustine on prisoner, where he was detained for nearly a year before he was exchanged. Rutledge would follow in his father's footsteps and become a governor of the state of South Carolina and a senator from that state. Rutledge played an important role in the partisan politics of early America. It was he who, initially supporting the Federalists and the Washington administration representing the low-country South Carolina group, eventually shifted the politics during the Adams presidency away from Adams and to Jefferson. He was annoyed by some of the, quote, Eastern interests, which we could probably understand better as Northern interest, and their attempt to block the admission of the state of Tennessee into the Union, which was seen as an attempt of the Eastern interest to make the South less powerful. At the convention, he had taken an action that made Adams call him the hero of the Quaker, a derogatory comment, meaning wanted peace rather than independence. When Richard Henry Lee made his motion on the floor of independence, it was Rutledge, who postponed it until an agreement with France or Holland could be worked out. This led to the writing of the Declaration of Independence and another vote in the Continental Congress and a delay of about a month. Rutledge was hoping there could be some agreement worked out. There was a huge British armada coming. Maybe we can talk to the general, and indeed he tried. After the signing of the Declaration, Rutledge, along with Adams and Ben Franklin, went in a boat and, under flag of truce, met with General Howe, who was leading the armies against him. However, they were unable to work out a satisfactory deal. As the colony of South Carolina was created, its neighbor Georgia would be for another 60 years a wooded marshland inhabited by several tribes of Indians, but few Europeans. There were two small settlements. They were Spanish mission towns set up to facilitate trade between St. Augustine and Charleston. Thus, you can imagine Georgia as being something like the Alaska among the colonies in 1776, though certainly not in climate It was the newest and southernmost colony of America, the only one formed during the reign of the three King Georges, named after George II. Settled in 1732 by a member of parliament who wished to improve the conditions of London's poor and give some people from debtor's prison a chance. For 20 years, it abolished slavery on its soil and then succumbed to pressure from South Carolinians and others who had moved into the state. The colony centered around Savannah, was never in a safe position, and was soon invaded by Spanish forces. But the colonial Georgians were able to fight off the Spanish attack and preserve the colony as an English-speaking area. The colony was extremely concerned, though always, about its security, being right on the border between the two nations, and the border with Indians, many of whom were allied with the English. It seemed not likely initially that George would vote for independence. Initially, they refused to send representatives to the Continental Congress when that group first assembled in 1775 to redress grievances with the crown. But St. John's Parish, located about 40 miles south of Savannah, was a hotbed of resistance to British rule. And there, the citizens of the parish, after several attempts to get Savannah to go along, gathered in the Midway Congregational Church and elected Lyman Hall as their representative to Congress, even before the colony itself sent representatives. Paul was Yale-educated. He was a preacher at a church up in Connecticut, but was removed from the pulpit, well, on moral charges. Often we don't have historical records of everything that occurs, uh, but some biographies say these charges were supported by his own confession. Well, he did what any former preacher would do. He got into politics. But he also studied medicine and became a teacher. And after his first wife died in 1752, went down first to South Carolina and then to Georgia in the late 1750s. Still a very new colony. When St. John's Parish was thereafter renamed Liberty County, it sent Lyman Hall to the Continental Congress, September of 75. They also sent with him large bags of rice for the support of the Continental Soldiers in Boston. Lyman would serve in the Continental Congress until 1780. Yet Liberty County, Georgia, and Hall would suffer for their stand. Its main seaport and its church, where Hall was authorized, was burnt down by the British. Short time later, Hall's property was burnt, and he stood accused of high treason. He fled to Charleston, which was then also overtaken by the British, He then fled to Connecticut, where he was harbored by family and friends. Paul returned to Georgia in 1782 to reclaim his lands. He was elected to the House of Assembly in 1783. And he was elevated to the office of the governor. A single year as governor, served another year in the assembly, then a year as judge, then returned to private life. Died in 1790 at age 66, having seen his country independent and under a constitution. In the 1969 Broadway musical 1776, at a critical point in the struggle, John Adams trying to convince his fellow delegates in the Second Continental Congress to choose independence, Hall re-enters the chamber to change George's vote. He says he was divided in thinking about it. In trying to resolve my dilemma, I remembered something I'd once read, that a representative owes to the people, not only his industry, but his judgment, and he betrays them if he sacrifices it to their opinion. That was written by Edmund Burke, a very influential member of the British Parliament. Hall, in this Broadway play, then walks over to the tally board and changes George's vote from nay to yay. It's good drama. And it may have occurred, actually, with another delegate that we'll talk about in a bit. But it's not likely to be correct. If it were, Hall was disguising his true sentiments. He had already been a committed independence delegate. And although his colonies, Georgia's wishes, were indeed divided, parts of the state weren't talking to each other. He was in the patriot part of that division in Georgia. And serving with him, representing the quiet southern colony, was his ally, Button Gwinnett, a Savannah planter. Gwinnett was elected to the Continental Congress, but he was no national figure. He was not well-known in the other colonies. He was a late supporter of a separate nation, as was most of Georgia. But when his constituents switched, so did he. He voted in favor of independence and signed the document. He was a giant state figure in what would be two factions, vying not only with the king, but with each other, even before independence was won. He wrote the Georgia State Constitution, served as Speaker of the Georgia Assembly, and upon the death of the Georgia governor, he became governor himself. Upon assuming that office, he went on offense and began an attack on Florida that failed. And that's where his rival, Lachlan McIntosh, head of the other faction, used that failure to defeat him for election of governor of Georgia. Button Gwinnett, outraged, challenged him to a duel to defend his honor. Both men were wounded. But Gwinnett's wound shattered his leg bone, and he died in 1777, a year after signing the Declaration, and before he could see his colony win independence. It's a shame that something so base and petty as a duel would take the life of one of the signers of a great document. Ambitions and jealousies in a colony that was so new would already have a healthy set of politics. But it probably shows the inevitability of partisan infighting, which, would plague the new nation even after winning independence. We know in the future, the most famous victim of dueling would be Alexander Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary of the United States, engaging in a duel with the Vice President, Aaron Burr. George Walton of Georgia had a role in putting together the duel, making arrangements, which he ended up being censured for. Walton was a carpenter who had worked his way up to become a successful politician. He was an ally, not a button-gwinnett, but of his rival McIntosh. Walton, in one of the cleanest upward-angled plane signatures, signed the Declaration of Independence along with other Georgia delegates. He would later become governor of Georgia and a senator from the state. As a member of the Georgia militia, Walton fought to defend the invasion, defend the city of Savannah when it was captured by the British in 1778. During that fight, he himself was captured though a year later he was exchanged for another prisoner. Walton was returned to Congress in 1780 and stayed through 1781. He remained in Philadelphia until 1783. When he came back, he was then censured by the Georgia legislature for his involvement in that duel, which led to the death of Gwinnett. In 1789, he served in the first electoral college that elected General, now President, George Washington. And he was again elected governor. Georgia suffered greatly. The new state's exposed seaboard position made it a tempting target for the British Navy. Savannah was captured by the British and Loyalist forces in 1778, along with some of its hinterland, forcing the Patriots to move to the city of Augusta, Georgia. It was attempted to be relieved by American and French troops in 1779. They were unsuccessful in retaking the city. That meant it was only in the final years of the American Revolution. When Georgia was released from Loyalist control, it and New York City were the Loyalist bastions during the war. North Carolina had its Loyalist elements, but was no bastion. The colony of North Carolina presents an interesting story. The state's legislature gave the delegates more latitude, more latitude than many states. The legislature said that the delegates might make any acts done by them or consent given in behalf of this province obligatory in honor upon any inhabitants thereof who is not an alien to his country's good and apostate to the liberties of America. North Carolina sent three delegates, country lawyer John Penn, city lawyer William Hooper, and merchant Joseph Hughes. We'll start with Hooper because he was just not the type of guy that anyone would expect to join a revolution. William Hooper was an odd rebel, a man who had served the king's government in his colony and had built his career at least partially on crushing a rebellion. He healed from the North, from Massachusetts, where he was the son of a minister at Boston's Trinity Church. He studied under James Otis, a popular attorney in Boston who was regarded as a radical in terms of American relations with the British. Hooper studied under Otis until 1764, and once completing his bar exam, realized too many lawyers in Boston. So he went south and moved to Carolina in 1767, nine years before independence. He moved to Williamton North Carolina, at the time the largest city in the colony, began to practice law and became the circuit court lawyer for Cape Fear. As a deputy attorney general in 1768, Hooper worked with colonial governor William Tyron to suppress a rebellious group known as the Regulators who participated in the War of the Regulation prior to the Revolutionary War. The Regulars had been operating in North Carolina for some time, and in 1770 it was reported that the group dragged Hooper through the streets in Hillsborough during a riot. Hooper advised that Governor Tyron use as much force as necessary to stop the rebels. Indeed, as Adams wrote to Jefferson, by the time of the Continental Congress, Hooper's position had not changed all that much. He was, he was quite a conservative. Now you'll remember, Adams told Jefferson, as well as I do, that we had not had a greater Tory than Hooper. He wanted reconciliation with the British. It had been the case with Thomas Haywood of South Carolina. His moderation earned him no respect for the British. His plantation was burnt down when the British took Wilmington. Plantation was burnt down when the British took Wilmington. Throughout the course of the American Revolution, the British were continually looking for ways to capture him. He moved his family out of his house into a separate house in Wilmington, but when the British captured that city in 1781, Hooper found himself separated from his family. The British burnt his small house in Wilmington and his estate in the country. Hooper was forced to the position of having to rely on friends for a place to live and food while he recovered from malaria. A year later, he was reunited with his family and settled in Hillsborough, where he continued working with the North Carolina Assembly until 1783. Between 1787 and 88, Hooper was a federalist, led a strong campaign for North Carolina to ratify the new U.S. Constitution. He then retired from public service and died in 1790. John Penn was no Tory. He was not from the large settlement of Wilmington. He was from a representative from the backwoods of North Carolina. He was a charming country lawyer. Though he did have an inheritance, he was not exceedingly wealthy. He was lucky to have an uncle who possessed a knowledge of the law and a good set of law books. In those days, you did not go to law school. You studied on your own and with mentors. He worked his way up to a legal career. Like Hooper, he moved to North Carolina from a more settled area, in this case, Virginia, where there was also a glut of the legal profession, to the North Carolina country where a man of law was needed. He earned a good reputation, and he got involved in politics. He was a strong patriot, immediate supporter of American independence, and made his political career running against British intrusion in American lives. Penn signed the Articles of Confederation and served on the North Carolina Board of War until 1781. Penn was a most active member, and a large part of his efforts were devoted to supplying war materials to General Nathaniel Greene's Continentals. His efforts earned him credit for the ultimate defeat of the British general Charles Cornwallis in the Battle of King's Mountain, which would force the British from the state of North Carolina. In a sense, though, when it came time to vote, these first two North Carolina delegates didn't matter. Hooper wasn't there for the independence vote, though he inked the document later. Penn was there, but everyone knew he was for independence. So the decision of how the state of North Carolina would come down depended on the third delegate. John Hughes, like his fellow delegates, was not born in North Carolina. He was a New Jersey-born merchant living and operating in Wilmington. He was not interested in a radical break. He had been engaged in commercial transactions with England for the space of 20 years. He was firm on American rights, and he was elected to the North Carolina Assembly on the issue of the Stamp Act and served until the governor dissolved the assembly in 1775. Then he entered the Continental Congress, where he worked on an early petition. Despite his merchant business, he insisted on a non-importation device to protest the infringement of American rights, something that would cause him personal financial sacrifice. So it fell on Hughes to be the swing vote for the state. Hughes, not a lawyer or a shipping merchant, seemed to lean towards reconciliation. He was firm or feeble, Adams wrote to Jefferson years later, depending on whether the day was sunny or cloudy. But apparently a speech made by Sam Adams influenced Hughes greatly. Before the independence vote was cast, Adams began a reinforcing victor on the offenses of the king and the need for independence. As his cousin spoke, John Adams noted, Hughes was in a trance and became the convinced of the rightness of the cause. After the speech, Hughes said... It is done, simply, and cast his vote for independence. John Adams suggested as well that maybe some lobbying from his fellow North Carolina delegate helped to convince him. Penn fixed him, Adams told Jefferson later. It is done, he said, and indeed it was. After the vote, Hughes fully committed, signing the declaration with vigor. Indeed, he was put his knowledge to use. Hughes would serve as the American Revolutionary Secretary of Naval Affairs. In that role, he was faced with an ill-equipped navy, of which to fight the British. His solution? He provided his own extensive fleet of ships, outfitted them, and chose the most capable men to captain the ships. John Paul Jones was one of these captains, for whom Hughes was instrumental in providing a command. We've now gone through some of the most unknown signers of the Declaration, those from the south of Virginia. These southern states represented, in a sense, the bedrock of American independence. Without them, it would have been very easy for the British to opt invasive operations in the south, from which to crush a northern rebellion. With their commitment, independence was truly a united and meaningful effort. As it were, the British would attempt to start a base of operations in the south, attacking Charleston and Savannah, and it is in the south of the country where the Revolutionary War really got decided. And it is a shame that some of these signers get so little recognition, because many of them were local politicians. And the document that they signed brought the battle back to their homes. Thank you for listening. If you like this uh, podcast I'm doing, they signed the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Of course, you could tell someone about it or comment on iTunes. I also do a podcast known as My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There I discuss history and apply it to the politics of today. It's a very different type of program, but if you like this sort of thing, maybe you'll like that podcast as well. In the next podcast, we're going to take a very long field trip.